Welcome to the Hey Soul Sister podcast, where Mel Histon will guide you through life's big questions and bring you one step closer to doing this crazy journey as best you can. Hey Soul Sister, we all struggle from stress and anxiety to varying degrees throughout our lives. In other Hey Soul Sister episodes, we've looked at stress and anxiety that so many people experience, the effect it has on the body, why people experience greater levels of stress than others, and how to use mindfulness to manage stress and anxiety. For this podcast episode today, I have a special guest who experienced such extreme anxiety. She was institutionalized and had to travel a long road to recovery. I've got author and motivational speaker Emma Thompson with me today. So at the age of 20, Emma experienced a psychotic breakdown and spent the best part of a year in and out of hospitals and mental institutions. Crippled with traumatic episodes of insanity, she became a ward of the state. She lost her job, her friends, her driver's license. She dropped out of uni and a huge win, she recalls, was celebrating being able to order her own takeaway coffee at the corner store. A decade later, though, Em's life totally polarises that of her past. She's happy and healthy and has a wonderful whole and full life as a businesswoman and mother of three children. So I've asked Em to come in today because I'm really curious around what she experienced and knowing that so many of us do struggle with stress and anxiety, but we probably don't to the degree that we're institutionalised. So I'm very grateful to Em for coming in and sharing her story with us and then how she's actually gone on to heal more importantly. So Em, hello, thank you. Hi Mel, thanks for having me. Em, I'm so grateful for you because your story is a fairly unique one from my perspective in that I don't know anybody else who has been institutionalised, I guess, but then has had the courage to go and write a book about it. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, it is a story about absolute insanity, but I certainly have some courage around talking about the things that make people uncomfortable. Absolutely. In in the hope that it brings them some peace. Yeah, so the name of your book to start with, it's Once Upon Insanity. So Em, back when you were a teen, you were struggling with anxiety and that kind of led you down that slippery slope to being institutionalised and made a ward of the state. Back then, what were you anxious about? What was causing your anxiety? That's a really interesting question and the reason why is because I didn't actually realise at the time that I had anxiety. So for as long as I can remember... I often felt like something wasn't right. My thoughts were extremely busy, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and that things that appeared to be easier for other people certainly weren't for me. And what that felt like was constantly buzzing inside my mind, sometimes an inability to concentrate and focus, a lot of fear and catastrophizing about situations. Yeah, just socially it affected me. I was frightened that I wouldn't fit in, that kind of a thing. I also suffered with nausea, restlessness, but just generally found things more difficult, I thought. And because I didn't know it was anxiety, I labelled myself with a lot of judgement. So it wasn't until later in life, it almost wasn't until I actually had the cathartic experience of writing about my experience that I realised what I really did battle with for as long as I can remember was anxiety itself. So when did your anxiety reach a point where you had a psychotic episode? It's really something that is more common than we actually think. I think, again, it was because I didn't realise... 
at the time that what I had was such bad anxiety that I was going to be up against the risk of falling into psychosis. And you're a teenager. Yes, I was. So you're a growing, developing human being. You're a kid. Yeah, that's right. And anxiety is something that actually affects more than 2 million Australians at this current time. So it's something that is extremely common and it is a neurological disorder and it really does show up physically. So just before I had a psychotic breakdown, I was not long after my 20th birthday And for me, what had occurred was something called freeze mode. So we talk about the nervous system and fight, flight, and now we talk about freeze mode. So at the time, in my 20th year, the risk for me to drop into psychosis was characterised by a complete mind blank from time to time over the things that I was really familiar with, such as reading. Oh, really? Yeah, such as being able to sit down and read a book. I was a bookworm. I loved to read. But sitting down and reading was almost impossible at the time. I recall my younger sister dancing in a Steadfords and requiring costumes to be stitched and sewed and that was something that I did regularly for her. And sitting down at a sewing machine that was my own and not knowing how to use it. It was like the thoughts and the resources inside my mind were no longer accessible. So my nervous system had certainly gone into this freeze mode where we actually can't move, think, or even draw upon our typical developed skills. And that in itself creates anxiety. Want to save your soul? Review us on Apple Podcast. Absolutely, because you're like, what's going on? What has happened? Why have I not got the download in my brain that shows me how to do such and such, which I'm so used to being able to do? So you then layer on another level of anxiety and another level of fear and another level of self-loathing that you can't do what you normally do. And so were you living with that day-to-day, that anxiety? like? Yeah, again, in hindsight, such a beautiful thing because we only know our experience from inside ourselves. So at the time it was like, this must just be normal, but at the same time... I am so not normal because nobody else seems to be struggling in the way that I am. And again, back then, because we're going back 16 years now, we weren't talking about anxiety. We weren't talking about the nervous system. We weren't talking about freeze mode and what it looks like and what it feels like. So I guess I wasn't a slippery slope, but at the time, my family, my friends and myself obviously weren't aware. I was going to say, did they realise you were struggling with the anxiety? Absolutely not. Because again, it's something you internalise. For me, I'm the sort of person that if I don't really grasp it and have a good understanding of it, I'm not going to outwardly show it. So you're struggling with the anxiety from day to day. Mm -hmm. You start to go into bouts of freeze mode. Mm -hmm. So when does your psychotic breakdown happen? And what does that look like? So my first psychotic episode, which I guess you can say I didn't resurface from properly for several months, was me being away on a weekend away with a group of friends, but there were also some unfamiliar people there at the time. So I think that my anxiety was more spiked during this period of time because I was already so neurologically wound up. And being in a new environment, not necessarily feeling as safe or as comfortable, could potentially have been one of the contributors as to my first psychotic breakdown. But we don't really know exactly what caused it. That's fairly inconclusive. I can tell you that the first sign of psychosis for me 
was a lot of noise inside my head. It was very loud. It was very noisy. I couldn't tell you it was voices as such. There was just layers of sound. And I would suggest it felt like being in a really, really loud space where there's lots of different levels of noise. We've all been in those situations where we're like, I've just got to get out of here because it's too noisy. It's like that, except that you can't get away from it. And so you said that that lasted the first time for a couple of months. Yeah, so that level of noise sort of came and went for several months. But also in my experience, I suffered hallucinations and delusions. So I would see things that weren't actually there in this physical reality, but were certainly there in the reality in which I was experiencing consciousness, I guess. I could smell things that were just as real to me then as being here with you is now. I could touch things, taste things. It was really an experience where, again, my senses were so heightened and the level of information and data coming in was being processed in a way that my brain was obviously under an enormous amount of stress and my reality therefore was completely warped. So what were you seeing in the hallucinations? It varied, but frighteningly. My psychosis was characterised by a lot of trauma. So I often talk about the value of being very careful with what you expose your brain to, what you expose your subconscious to. So reconsidering how much media you take on that's negative, movies that affect you, relationships that are toxic, social experiences that aren't good for you. Everything that essentially I had experienced that was negative in my little life up until my 20th year went in and then replayed in a more amped up, more horrific way, I guess. So a lot of war, a lot of death, a lot of trauma, a lot of grief, a lot of fear. So I remember reading in your book, which is awesome, it's a really, really good book, I remember you saying that you thought like everybody was dead. That's right. Psychosis for me, followed a storyline on one particular day, which went on again for several days. And I think this really was at the start of my psychosis. I believed I was the only one left alive. I followed this storyline in my head, which then meant that everybody appeared to be dead. So there was lots of zombie-like bodies and my experience of my family with it that they looked like they had risen from the dead and it sounds almost comical but if you can imagine I'm experiencing this as my reality. So it would have been traumatic and scary. Absolutely so scary and so traumatic and my body and my brain is going to respond to that as if it's real. So my body is consistently then being flooded with stress hormones cortisol, adrenaline, I am consistently in this loop where I'm needing to escape my reality. And if the storyline is that everybody's dead and I'm the only person left alive, then I'm completely isolated and I'm needing to ultimately end my own life as well so I can be with my loved ones. And so very complex. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you're having the psychotic episode, it sounds very traumatic to be living through in your mind. Were you showing any outward signs to your family? Yes and no. So at times I was extremely verbal and extremely outward in my communication with them as to what I was experiencing. Sometimes I was really insular and withdrawn and was experiencing it internally without any external signs. So that in itself I spoke about in my book that there were times where I thought I was screaming out loud for help but I wasn't screaming out loud for help I was thinking that that's what I was doing but I actually wasn't doing that 
One thing I will share, because I think it's probably really valuable for your listeners, is that my family learnt to stop telling me that I was unwell or that what I was experiencing wasn't real. They figured out that that was a huge trigger because the way in which I was experiencing it was real to me. So eventually, rather than say, it's okay, calm down, Em, it's not real, they started to meet me at the level that I was at. And that in itself was amazingly beneficial for me to calm down. Because I then realised that they kind of got it versus me trying to get them to get it. Let's get soulful on social media. Search the Sister Code Facebook page and follow us on Instagram. And so at what point did they go, look, we can't help Em, we need to make her a ward of the state and have her institutionalised in like a mental hospital? Uh, that was an extremely difficult decision for my family to oh, make. I, can, I can't imagine what your parents and your family, how hard that would be to actually go, you just want the best for your child and what can I do, the helplessness? That's right. I guess you do reach that period of helplessness where you realise that you have to let go and you have to trust somebody else. And in the, the experience of me becoming a ward of the state, I'm a mother now myself. I can't imagine what it's like to know that I can't do anything and that I need to certainly have that faith and trust that somebody else is going to potentially be able to help me. So I guess the risk around this kind of an illness or condition is that you pose a risk to your own life and that's essentially what happened to me. So I was continuously posing a risk that I would take my own life and so I guess it was a decision to save my life that my parents put me into the hands and the care of professionals. Well, hats off to them because, again, I know how hard that would be. As a parent, I can't imagine what that was like for them. Yeah, no, they certainly are amazing people. So what's it like? You've been struggling with a psychotic episode and then you arrive in essentially a mental health hospital. I think that's what a lot of people think it would be like back Like then. in the movies. <laughs> yeah, very, very similar to the movies, believe it or not. I mean, I know that Hollywood certainly sensationalises some things, but it was definitely a public mental health hospital where... Again, at the time, I didn't know where I was. I had no handle on what I was experiencing. So along with most of the people in there, we were all very, very unwell and very, very far from a sense of understanding or reality around how to be and how to become and all those kinds of things. So it was really scary. People who were unwell everywhere and a lot of mental health professionals who were under an enormous amount of stress trying to navigate this kind of a situation. It was loud and busy and Were you in your own room? No, I did get to share a room on several occasions with different people. It was absolutely frightening (laughs) to say very little about the situation. Yeah, it was dire to be put in that kind of an environment. But at the same time, I think, Mel, what was more frightening was waking up and realising where I was. Because not knowing where I was for some time was like ignorance is bliss, right? But it was when I realised where I was and when I realised the extent of my situation, that was when the depression and the shock really set in. Are you like, oh my God, I'm in a freaking mental hospital. That's exactly. Oh my God, how did I end up here? That's right. That's exactly what it was like because no part of me ever expected and same for my family, not a single part of me nor part of them thought this was where I would end up. And I find it astounding. I know you and you're Mm. such a bright button such a beautiful, bright, spark, shining light of a person. It's almost incomprehensible that 
you had that happen in your life because you suffered the anxiety, the stress, the depression and that you had a psychotic breakdown because it's just you are such a bright shining light now. Thanks Mel. I certainly think my life polarises that of my past but also I think that the reason why I went through it was so that I could speak up about it because this kind of a condition and these kind of circumstances are deeply, deeply rooted in shame because we feel as people who have suffered mentally that we are at some level untrustworthy when, oh, massively because of the level of judgment around the misunderstanding of the conditions themselves. So when I realised that in fact what was my greatest fear becoming my reality which was loss of mind there's been research that shows that people would rather lose a limb than lose their mind again because of how loss of mind has been portrayed in society and how much we judge each other based on our ability to keep it together we're living in a world now where it's extremely difficult to keep it together and so for me it was about recognizing that What is keeping me silent should be the thing that gives me a voice. And that's essentially what I have done and what has been the most difficult thing for me to ever do. And I talk now about an experience that feels like it didn't happen to me. It was about a girl from the past. However, I carry her with me every day because it gives me an enormous level of perspective and ability to help others, which I'm grateful for. So when you realised where you were in the mental hospital. Did you freak out? I did. I was so frightened. And I also, at some level, consistently thought someone was going to be able to come and get me out. And nobody could come and get me out because obviously that goes through the ward of the state. The state decides when you're able to go home. I know this sounds harsh, but do you feel like a prisoner? Well, yes, certainly. Ultimately, that's where a lot of criminals who are obviously insane or suffering mentally end up. So, Were Were you ever harmed? No, I was never harmed within the public or the private system. Oh, I was thank goodness. extremely <laughs> fortunate because those kinds of things, as horrible as they may be to talk about, they happen all of the time. I've heard about horror stories around, you know, women being raped in mental it, it can It can happen. It can happen so easily. There was like a story of me obviously waking up in the middle of the night and having a man sitting on the end of my bed. and That would have been so scary, Slim Shady. That's right, it's in my book is Slim Shady. And he was hilarious. He obviously called himself Slim. He walked like Slim. He talked like Slim. And him and I, I guess, weren't too dissimilar in age at the time. And so, yeah, I guess we used to pass each other in the corridors and things like that. And he was very comfortable with me. I wasn't so, comfortable with anyone at that stage. I remember my family had made such an effort to make my bed in the ward be similar to what my bed was like at home. And so I woke up in the middle of the night and he was there. Um, did you freak out? I did. I absolutely panicked. And I thought, oh my God, like, who is this on the end of my bed? And then he did his typical line, which is he got a cigarette. He just wanted to smoke. smoke. And I knew straight away that it was him and was able to get call for help. And somebody came and obviously guided him out of my room. But they needed to be able to see what was going on and have that open doors as much as possible. So there was certainly a risk of that happening. And I was very, very fortunate to come out unscathed. So at what point do they go, you're ready to leave? 
That's a process and that's a process that needs to go through court proceedings and essentially there's professionals, mental health professionals who are deciding that, psychiatrists namely, that are deciding how to manipulate your medications so that you have a level of sanity which means then that you don't obviously pose a risk to yourself or a risk to others and it was sad for me to come to terms with the fact that in order for me to be considered well enough to leave hospital and to return to a somewhat normal life, I would need to be really heavily medicated. So, so while you're in there, that's what they're doing. They're that's actually what they're, they're doing. They're actually trying to find the level of medication where you can exist in a level of normal. That's right. And it's not even a level of normal. It's just a level of not posing any harm to yourself. That was hard for me because I was really in a heavy, heavy medication haze. So at that stage, knew at some level what had occurred inside my brain, but was then battling with these side effects from this medication that was extremely powerful in my system. I didn't feel like the same girl. I didn't feel like I had the same brain and I certainly didn't feel like it was better. I felt that the noise had quietened down, which is essentially what the medication really works on, is balancing back out that neurology. Want to fill your soul with more? Go to thesisterco.com. So how long were you in there then? The first hospital stay, which was a public hospital stay, was two months. And then I was moved into a private facility where I spent another close to two months. But prior to going to hospital, my family took turns in sort of caring for me for almost seven weeks again. So I recall falling ill around about the March and still having a level of hallucination, I guess a delusion also, a level of psychosis hanging around in the November. So when you were finally released, what is life like for you then? I think I was probably at one of my lowest points at that point, believe it or not. I had to come to terms with what I'd been through. I had to come to terms with how I was going to explain that. I had to come to terms with what I'd lost because I was at a time in my life prior to that where I guess I felt that I was doing quite well for an average 20-year-old girl who's at university and has an active social life and feeling that first sense of freedom. I had recently gotten back from an amazing overseas holiday with my sisters. Like life was – I was doing okay. And so I had to come to terms with losing all of that, having gained an enormous amount of weight – not to mention the stigma of the condition and of suffering as I had. It was difficult to put my life back together. So is that when the guilt and shame kind of... Massively, yeah, Yeah. massive amounts of guilt and shame and I think I was at really low. I think I didn't want to continue and it was a long road, you know, like people think, oh, wow, she's home and so therefore she must be better and I was like, oh, I'm at rock bottom and I don't know how I'm going to actually even show my face. So that took time. And I don't believe that there's anything miraculous about me, but I certainly believe that I have a level of determination that's second to none. So I wasn't going to succumb to that darkness for any length of time and it was a case of step-by-step rebuilding my life with some significant factors that influenced that recovery and obviously, again, a significant level of support. So, and it was not too long after that, was it, that you had... A beautiful baby boy. That's exactly right. That's the truth. My son Gabriel was born the following year and that was a decision that was obviously extremely difficult for my family and one... So you'd met a man? (laughs) Yes, I had. And he was certainly willing to see beyond the conditions that I had recently endured. 
although it wasn't something that was necessarily recommended for me to become a mum so soon after that experience it felt so right in my heart to make that decision and it was in the decision to have Gabriel that I was able to come off medication and Well, I think (laughs) – I remember reading your book and I think you're amazing. So your mental health nurses and family tried to have an intervention. They didn't want to see you have a baby. Yeah. So they tried to – but I find it amazing that it was actually him that you were like, this is it, I'm getting off my medication, I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to be a mum. Absolutely. He gave me a newfound strength around if I can't do it for myself, then I'm certainly going to do it for him. And he was certainly that catalyst to pave the way for me to be who I am today. And he's, yep. he's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Almost 15. He is a very handsome, delightful young human being. I haven't seen Gabe for a couple of years. I saw him when we were camping up at Lemon Tree Passage with the Burritos and Gabe was there. I didn't even realise it was your son and he is the most delightful human being and handsome. I know, he is absolutely gorgeous. A true blessing. And he is a true blessing in every single way, yeah. So when you wrote your book, it was initially called... Total head case, I called it originally. It had a few different names and there was a road to Gabriel or something like that. And then then you ended up calling it Once Upon Insanity. What was it like coming off your meds and being pregnant? Like, How did life look then? Life was really quite simple then because I had come from what I had been through. I started to learn about the value of simplicity and the value of discipline around those habits that were really, really healthy for me. So life was full, but life was evidently very simple. The things that I engaged in regularly were exercise, I became a Pilates instructor, I changed the way that I ate and I valued simplicity more so than anything else. And I think that looking back, if there's a way in which I've managed my anxiety post-psychosis, I haven't recovered and I don't believe we ever recover from something like anxiety and it's just a personal opinion based on my own experience. What I have learnt how to do is live with it, know what it is, know what it's trying to communicate to me so that anxiety and I can be friends and not enemies. I know that it is in my makeup to naturally be somebody who's anxious We all are different. Some babies sleep, some babies don't. Some of us are sweet, some of us are savoury. Some of us are more prone to stress, others are more prone to not be able to get off the couch. I am the sort of person who's an up, up, up person, which means that I value and must value down time more than up. So stillness, simplicity, going slow, going gently are things that have been difficult for me to learn, but ultimately are the things that I value most in my life. And going back to that time when I had first recovered and I had a new baby, they were the sorts of things that were ultimately really important to me. Fast forward 14 years, is it? (laughs) 15 this year. 15 years. Life is so different for you and you've now written a book which is awesome. Once Upon Insanity, people, please look it up and get yourself a copy. It is a very candid account of Em's mental illness that she suffered, her recovery and the journey since then. But Em, you've turned what you've experienced into something really, really positive. And so now in addition to being an author about your experiences, you're out there in schools 
empowering students and talking to them around mental health but also things like confidence, self-esteem, managing anxiety. So everything you've learned from your experience and you're out there now helping kids at school. Tell us about that. So I know that my current work and my current path is really deeply inspired by that little quote, be the person that you needed when you were younger. And I said earlier in our chat that I had no idea that what I was experiencing was anxiety. And so I was like, wow, had somebody potentially told me, you know what, there's nothing actually wrong with you. Here is this thing that some of us are prone to and this is what it looks like and this is what it feels like. I guess I would have straight away felt like I didn't need to isolate myself so much. So my work now sees me go into schools and work with adolescents specifically at a time that is ultimately really difficult for us as we're trying to get to know ourselves more and become who we're here to become. I work with teenagers around emotional intelligence, how to be with themselves, how to understand their feelings and not be reactive but be responsive and able to meet themselves where they're at. I talk a lot about self-worth. I talk a lot about resilience, about it's the fact that what is right about you that gives you the strength to continue to endure life's challenges. It's not about focusing on what's wrong. I say a lot to the kids that what we focus on grows. I'm so grateful to do the work that I do. It inspires me massively. It's been something that I wouldn't be able to do having not been through what I've been through. So I've kind of been able to flip it on its head and I encourage young people to be able to do the same, is flip their shit on its head. <laughs> Make the Love best it, of flip it. the shit on its head. Flip, flip the shit. So what have been some of your key life learnings? I think my key life learning is that life absolutely exists only in the present moment and being present is no different to giving your full attention to something. I don't believe that love and attention are different. So whilst ever we're not able to be fully in that present moment, then there's an element of fear that we can essentially be sucked into. And so my biggest learning has certainly been about where to bring your focus and to be able to let go of the past and not project too far into the future, but to value the now. And I guess that leads me into my second biggest learning, which is about going gently. Because in order to be in the moment, we have to be able to be still and we have to be able to see and recognise and be alert to what's happening right here and right now. And we can't be anywhere else. And we live in a world now that requires us at some level to be everywhere else other than where we are. And I guess that takes me to my third biggest learning, which is that it isn't without being entirely present and giving ourselves that attention moment by moment that we are able to recognise our worth So it is that moment by moment we get to re-choose ourselves and we get to re-choose our enoughness. And it doesn't matter what we do. It's not about our job. It's not about what we look like. It's not about our ability to strive or hustle or grind or be successful. All of that is just stuff. What really is the bottom line is that we are enough regardless. So those, I guess, are my three biggest learnings. And again, we've had this conversation a couple of years back and my learnings at that time were probably very different. Yeah, they were. But we just continue to evolve and grow. And So Em, where can people get a copy of your book and learn more about your programs and what you do? You can visit my website where you'll be able to get a copy of the book. You'll be able to learn all about how to get me and my team involved at your child's school. The website is www.m, 
which is my name, E-M, and then the words isforyou.com.au. And you can find me through Instagram as well at emisforyou where you'll also be able to follow the link in my bio and read all about craziness that's me. (laughs) Well, Em, thank you so much for being so generous and sharing your story and your life learnings. It's very, very kindly generous of you because we can all learn from you. Thanks, Mel. It's an absolute pleasure and again, a privilege to be able to work with you. Thanks, Em. Thanks for listening to Hey Soul Sister with Mel Histon. What would help you on your crazy life journey? Email melissa at thesistercode.com.